0: a great way to start our brand new uh, week of our sermon series, Local Church, because what this series is, is an invitation to activation. And so last week, we challenged you to activate, and you did it. Um, And over and over, we're seeing that in little pockets of the church. There's a community group at The Nest this Saturday, and I'm sore because I was part of it, and I was on leaf raking duty. And so for three hours in the snow, you're raking leaves. You're going, this is This is gospel work. Like, we are helping them accomplish their mission by our service, and this is what it looks like, is we are activating to do the things around our community and in the lives of those we know in order to bring them grace and uh, push the mission forward. So that's what we have been doing today. We're going to follow Jesus uh, through one full chapter of Scripture. And so if you go, you know, if you had a goal to read a whole chapter of Scripture today, um, you're going to do it. And what we're going to learn, I'm just going to tell you the end here. What we're going to learn is something called local intentionality. And we're going to say, be where you are. That's going to be the really not very sophisticated takeaway is be where you are. There's a lot of other places you can be these days. You can be where you are. We got this thing figured out. So uh, Mark chapter 5 is where we're going to be. Jesus and his friends are on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and this is a Greek area called the Decapolis, and Deca just means ten. There's these ten Greek cities that were kind of uh, just sort of the uh, epicenter of Greek life in the day, and so Jesus is on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, and we pick up the story there in Mark 5, uh, verse 2. It says, when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. He'd often been chained hand and foot, and he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him, and night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. So Jesus goes over to the Greek side of the Sea of Galilee, and he immediately runs into this guy. Uh, this guy is uh, probably known in his area, right? If, if there was somebody, let's say there was somebody in Bowling Green who lived in the cemetery, cut himself with rocks, and would break free of chains and just sort of roamed the area around the cemetery, everybody would know about this person. Everybody would be slightly terrified of this person. People would keep their children away from this person. This would not be somebody that... Uh, Anybody would be surprised to find out existed. We'd be like, no, as soon as I moved here, the first thing they said, they were like, first, there's a tractor pull. Second, don't go by the cemetery, because that guy, okay. You guys like tractor pull jokes. I gotta make more tractor pull jokes. So as the story unfolds, Jesus engages this guy. And, and what we find is there's a demon that's speaking now to Jesus out of this man. The, d- the demon identifies himself as legion, which means many, and then begs that he not be um, kind of killed, but then rather be cast into a herd of pigs. And there's, we're told that there's a, a couple of shepherds of pig herders that are over on the side of the hill, and there's 2,000 pigs that they are caring for. Now, we know Jewish kosher, there, there's no pigs in the Jewish world in the sense that Jews don't eat pigs. There's no reason to raise the pigs. Uh, And yet we're on the Greek side of the lake. And so Jesus is not only dealing with this Greek man who is known in his community and probably reviled in his his community, but now the man is saying, why don't we deal with these unclean animals too? So Jesus agrees, and the pigs, uh, the the demon is cast, the many demon the legion, is cast into the pigs. The pigs then, as the story goes, throw themselves into the lake and drown themselves in the lake. The pig herders, having just lost their jobs, They immediately run to town and start telling everybody what just happened. The demon-possessed man is all of a sudden just fine. He's just like, he is doing so great. He is awesome. And people are noticing. People take note, and the healed man then, this man who used to be living in the cemetery, he's now healed. The demon has been cast out, and he's feeling pretty normal all of a sudden. He says, can I go with you, Jesus? And what's interesting is Jesus says, no, I don't think you're coming with us. No, you can't. No. No. Which is, you know, we're always saying, follow Jesus, follow Jesus. And this guy was like, I want to follow you. And Jesus goes, no, it's not your time yet. Jesus says, instead, stay with your people and tell your people. Which is really interesting to me. It's like like he's saying, um, be here where you have influence. A Greek person coming back into the Jewish world isn't going to have as much influence as a Greek person in this Greek area. And so stay here where you have influence and then tell the people of what I've done. It's right around this time that the people of the region begin begging Jesus to leave. Which sort of like on first look, you go, well, why? You know, he's done this great thing. And then you realize that this guy just cast a demon into 2,000 pigs, and what could he do next? So maybe, so they just go, can you maybe just leave? This is, you're making us uncomfortable. They're spooked by his miraculous powers. Maybe they're upset that the year's supply of bacon is in the lake. I don't know please leave. So what does Jesus do? Jesus gets back in the boat. The scripture says he takes a trip back across the lake to Capernaum, two to three-hour trip across the Sea of Galilee. We go back to the city of Capernaum. We'll show the picture again. So we reset ourselves in the the small town here, this fishing village. If you missed last week, Capernaum is about a 1,500-person town, mostly fishermen. It's not Rome, it's not the seat of power, it's not Athens, it's not the seat of knowledge, it's not Jerusalem, there's no religious importance, it's just this little place. But what do we know about small places? Even in small places there are important people. There are always, no matter how small the pond, there are big fish that swim in it, right? I would say every, maybe this way, every McDonald's has a manager. If you think about it that way, like, oh, every McDonald's, in every McDonald's of the 10,000 McDonald's, There's always, there's a chief in every one of them. Or, I mean, we're from a pretty big city, but every small town has a mayor and a sheriff. There's always somebody with power. There's always a big fish in a small pond. So even in a a small Jewish fishing village, there is like, you know, local royalty. There is local power there. Business leaders, religious officials. So we pick the story back up in verse 21. It says, when Jesus had crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. And then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus, he came and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and he pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus, it says, went with him. First note that this is the important guy in town. He's one of the synagogue leaders. He's a big fish in a small pond. And even though he has power in the town, he is powerless over whatever illness has his child. He's desperate for help, and Jesus has been healing people all around Galilee, not just in this Greek area. He's been healing people right in, this, in the midst of where Jairus is asking for more healing. If you walk through the first five chapters of Mark, I'll do it in summary fashion. What you will see is healing after healing after healing. Mark 1, Jesus is healing people with impure spirits and leprosy. In Mark 2, he heals the paralytic who was lowered in through the roof, and he calls Matthew— who uh, was the tax collector, the Jewish tax collector for the state of Rome. He calls Matthew to follow him, which I think is a healing. We don't always talk about that as a healing. It's a healing. Jesus heals Matthew, who was helping in the Roman oppression, and now he's following a subversive rabbi. He kind of heals him from his station in life, from his choices and places in life. Mark 3, he heals on the Sabbath, and he heals in a crowd. Mark 4, he's teaching parables, and then he calms a storm. He heals nature, in a sense. In Mark 5, he heads to the Greek side of the lake. We just read that part. And when he comes back, back to Capernaum, back to this little hamlet, people are waiting for him. They're ready. And so they press in, and the important guy in town is the first in line. He finds his way to the front of the line, as people with importance do, and he says, I need your help healing my kid. So Jesus says, sure, let's go. So we would acknowledge right there, we would say, if we just read the list of things that Jesus has been doing... In, in the weeks prior, Jesus is the best show in town. Like, they don't have Netflix. Jesus is the most interesting, compelling. He is the talk of the town. He's the best show in town. He is the most wildly entertaining thing they can imagine. So whether you believe in him as who he says he is, whether you see miracles or he's some sort of magician, everybody in this area is going, this Jesus is doing things. When I hear this narrative of, of he shows up and there are crowds waiting for him, it'd be easy to think of celebrities or the Beatles, or, you know, you kind of go like, who where do crowds wait for people? I, actually, it makes me think of Black Friday, where hordes of people have been waiting. You needed a new washing machine in August, but you're like, we get a deal on Black Black Friday. We're waiting, and then we'll get our washing machine. You're looking for your AirPods for your kid, your... Black Friday comes along, and then you've seen the pictures. I'll put one up. (laughs) It's a 43-inch television, too, which is kind of like, come on. But (laughs) that's pre-COVID, clearly. Everybody has 1,000-inch TVs now. But this is the picture. Every year on Black Friday, you see the pictures of people swarming over whatever the thing is that year. The fights break out. There's always the video of there's like a crush of people at the doors and people are getting trampled. Tickle Me Elmo. Who remembers Tickle Me Elmo? How old are we? We're getting old. Then there are people, and I know some of these people. I love these people that don't have an agenda on Black Friday. They're just there for the other people. I don't understand you. Some of you wake up early, get your coffee, and you go, I just want to go be a part of it and see kind of what's happening. And if we get something, great, but it's just kind of fun to be around all those people. And I cannot think of anything less fun than being around all of those people, but people do it. I know, and I love people who have got up early and said, you know what, I think we're just gonna go and see what's happening. No one, nowhere else to be at 6 a.m. other than, you know, the Coles, whatever. I'm bitter, it's not my fault. Going to see the people on Black Friday is like, it's forced torture. It's like I know what I'm getting myself into. I've had a joke in my notes. I'm not going to say it. I was going to say it's like being a Browns fan, but that doesn't feel fair this year. (laughs) I'm not going to say that. So Jesus is healing, right? The word is out. You can get a good deal. If you're a paralytic, you get a good deal right now. He's here. Come get him. Leprosy is half off. I I had to say that. That wasn't there, and I had to say it. I ran it by Robert in the office this week, and he was like, you should not say that. (laughs) It's a skin disease. It's half off. Okay. (sighs) Let's get back on track. Um, Some of these people that are crowding around Jesus are just there for the people. Some of them are there because they believe in him. Some of them are there because they need him. Some are just there because it's a crowd, and what else is exciting in this little fishing village? It's like a magic show. So we pick the story back up in verse 24. It says, A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors, and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Now, I cannot imagine what this would be like. But you know, you know the last time you were like sick, sick, like flu sick, where you were out for a few days, and you just felt totally drained. You know that, that first day better feeling? That first day where it's like it's lifting. The fever's gone. You got a little bit of energy back. You feel like eating again. That first day is like a magical feeling. And you may have had COVID, you may have had the flu, you may have had something, and it's three, four days in, and you're like, this is incredible. Most of us then go too fast, too far, too hard that first day, and we're back in bed the next day because we go too hard. But you know the feeling of, like, I think something is fundamentally different in my body. Like, something's changed. And it's like a, it's a 10% change. It's, it's a small change. It's a momentary change from a week to a new day. But you have that thing, like, I'm never taking this for granted again. If you've been sick enough, you wake up the next day when you feel better and you go, I am not taking feeling well for granted again. And then like a few months later, you do. But for a while, you're going, this is incredible. So imagine that feeling, that I'm better feeling, the fever is gone feeling, the flu is gone, that first day feeling, imagine that feeling, but multiplied over 12 years of feeling the other way. Of 12 years of waking up every day wondering if there's any way to be better and just knowing it's never getting better. 12 years of suffering. And she touches Jesus' cloak. And it says immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. She didn't have to wait for the symptoms to subside. She knew. She felt it. Something's fundamentally different now. Pick up in verse 30. At once, Jesus realized the power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around you, the disciples answered, and yet you ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Okay, so she's healed, and then Jesus is stopping why? If we make Jesus just about the end product, Jesus needs not stop here. She got what she came for. She's healed. It's fine. Jesus isn't here simply to be the end product for our life salvation mechanism. Jesus is fundamentally relational. So Jesus feels the power go out from him, knows this woman is healed, and then stops, even though where are they going? Why are the crowds pressing in? Because Jesus comes up on shore and Jairus says, hey, my daughter is dying. I need your help. And Jesus goes, all right, let's go. And the crowd cheers and goes, we're going to see another miracle. And Jesus is walking with this crowd of people, the Black Friday looking crowd of just crush of people everywhere. And people are touching people. And so, so much so that when Jesus gets touched and says, who touched me? The disciples say, have you looked around? Everybody is touching you. What are you talking? Everyone is touching everyone. Let's just keep going. And Jesus goes, wait. Wait. And Jairus must be thinking, what? Look, time is of the essence. My daughter is dying, and Jesus goes, wait. And he's looking through this crowd of people that have that look in their eye. You know that look. Air fryers are 40% off at Bed Bath and Beyond. (laughs) We have to. You know, they're like, this is their, this is, they're not there for him necessarily, they're part of the crowd. They're excited for the next thing. They're excited to be excited. And that's not true of all of them, but, but as you look through the ministry of Jesus, he, he's got 12. He's got, he doesn't have 1,200 people following him. These people aren't sticking with him. This is the excitement of the day. Jesus says, who touched me? Because he is intensely personal. He is healing, but he's relating at the same time. He wants to see her. He wants to see her. So he waits, and she outs herself, and he calls her daughter. He, he greets her with a personal greeting, an affectionate term, and this is, this is something. Don't miss this. Because she, as you've probably heard before, is ritually unclean. She is like among the outsiders and outcasts. She is the most outsidery outcast there is. And for 12 years, she's lived on the periphery of society because she cannot find someone who could heal her hemorrhaging. And so the crowds gather, and she sneaks into the crowd because she would not have been welcome. They know who she is. And yet in the rush of the crowd going to do the thing at Jairus' house, she sneaks her way in and then so surreptitiously grabs the hem of his garment. Doesn't walk up to him and kneel before him. Doesn't say, Lord, heal me. She goes, I know if I can just get close enough. And it's almost like he wanted to acknowledge her, isn't it? It's almost like even though she was healed, even though he made her better, it's almost like he wanted to acknowledge her, not only for her to tell her you don't need to skulk around in the shadows, you're healed. And maybe you need to hear that today. I don't know what you've been through. I don't know what your sin life is. I don't know what your habit is. I don't know what your shame or your guilt that you bring in here is. Maybe Jesus is looking at you and saying, "You don't have to sit in the shadows anymore." That your healing is your healing and I am your healer, but I want relationship with you. It's not just about you getting better. It's about you being known and you seeing that he sees you. He's not a magic formula that just takes away your sins. He is a savior who wants to relate to you in your newfound life. And so I think part of it is that she would be seen and acknowledged, and part of it is that the community would have to see her and acknowledge her. Because the other thing we do real well as modern Christians is we're good at, like I say, I don't know what shame you brought in or what guilt you brought in. I don't know what shame you're casting or guilt you're casting either. But in a small town, word travels and things happen And people talk, and then the shame police is out all around town. And Jesus looks at her and says, daughter, you are healed, so that those around him in the community would say, if he's willing to heal her, maybe I should accept her. And you and I are really good at receiving Jesus's forgiveness and really bad at offering it to others. We just are. Jesus is doing two things in one moment. He's seeing the daughter, healing her, and he's also looking at the community and going, this is how you approach this woman. She has dignity now because I've healed her. Pick up in verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus. Remember him? Oops. The synagogue leader, and they said, your daughter is dead. Why bother this teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told them, don't be afraid, just believe. And he went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? Child is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. So here's Jesus taking his time to find the unclean woman who's been dealing with the same issue for a decade. She's in no hurry, guys. It's been 12 years. And this urgent, critical situation is unfolding at the same time. Verse 40, after he put out all of them, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and he went in where the child was and he took her by the hand and said, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around for she was 12 years old and at this they were completely astonished and he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and he told them, give her something to eat. He walks in to the dead child. And he says, hey, sweet girl, hey, precious child, hey, wake up. 12-year-old girl, healed. The woman was 12 years unclean. Some parallel there. Healed. She was the child of an insider, and he touched her and healed her. The woman, the outcast, was the ultimate outsider, and he touched and healed her. What we see throughout this this passage of Scripture is Jesus won't be hurried. He's on his timeline, not mine. And Jesus won't be bullied. We're not going to tell him what we need him to do. He's got it. He's not going to be told who matters in the kingdom and who doesn't. He heals the 12-year problem before the critical, urgent need. Why? We can guess based on other things we've read that he said. The first shall be last. Greatest will be least. Who's more important socially? Well, clearly the daughter of the religious leader, not the outcast and outsider. Who's more important temporally? Well, it's the daughter of the religious leader. She's urgent and critical, not the outsider. Who will win Jesus more applause, more renown? It's the daughter of the religious leader, not the outsider. And who will cause the high religious to gasp? The outcast. The outcast touch the unclean, to heal the woman who's been on the outside, to give her the time of day. You start to see the beginning of the Pharisees and the religious leaders going, who is this? And how are we going to let him upset the apple cart? Jesus is making his way through a day. This is a day. He's making his way through a day. He starts in this Greek area. Right? He's Jewish. He owes them nothing. And still, he's intentionally present there. And he heals this Greek guy who's such a wild outsider that he is forced to live in the cemetery. He's living in the cemetery, and Jesus goes, that's the guy we're here to see. And then he tells him to stay here and be present with his people. They get in the boat, they go to Capernaum, same day. And the important Jewish leader gets to him first, and what is Jesus? He is intentionally present. He hears the man's heart, and he says, yes, I'll go with you. On the way, a Jewish woman, the outcast. Reaches and touches him, and she's healed. But he stops intentionally, doesn't he? He seeks her, he hears her, he looks her in the eyes, he gives her, her dignity to go with her healing, and then he finally finds the little girl. And now he's in intentional space with her. We've seen in the scripture that people. The one man said, "Jesus, will you heal my servant?" And he goes, "By your faith, it's already done. He doesn't have to be there." And yet Jesus makes his way to intentionally be with the little girl. He takes her by the hand, he's physically present, he calls her a term of endearment, he brings her back to life. And what is there for us to learn in this? In this day in the life of Christ, we can look and say wherever Jesus is, he's fully there. Wherever Jesus goes, there he is, he's fully there. And it sounds simple, it's so reductive that we go, "Well, that's how is that helpful?" Jesus is bringing the kingdom of heaven. He knows the cross is coming. He has every excuse to be checked out. He has every excuse. You have anxiety. You have stress. Yes. Jesus has some coming. Jesus has the weight of hell on his horizon. He has every right to zone out, scroll through his phone, and take a break. And he's intentionally present everywhere he goes. He brings peace to the Greek man. He brings wholeness and dignity to the cursed woman. He brings life and tenderness to the girl. And, and our job is to walk through a day of our own life. This is a day in the life of Christ. You are not Jesus. You don't have to live up to Jesus. Jesus came so that you could live through him, not become the new him, okay? And yet, we can say if we're walking the way of Jesus, maybe we should walk like Jesus, be more uh, in the way of Jesus. So walk through a day. Who are the people that you run across? How many people do you see in a week? Where do you see them? What might they be suffering from? Might they need a touch or some peace or some dignity or some tenderness or maybe even an invitation to true life? Reality is you can be anywhere you want to be. It's a digital world. You can escape right now. And you bring out a little rectangle and you can be anywhere else in the world. You don't have to be present where you are. You can be consumed with your future plans, your current problems, anxieties, and stresses. You can be. The challenge of the day and the challenges we walk through a day with Jesus is to be where you are. To look down the row of people sitting with you and go, I wonder what their needs are and how I might meet them. I wonder why God brought me into this place, in this space. I wonder why I ran into this person in this aisle, at this Kroger, at this time, and I know them. And I can take the earbuds out and put the podcast away and say, how are you doing? But how Really? There are opportunities around every corner. We are not going to be healing everybody around every opportunity. I'm not raising anybody from the dead today that I know of. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be intentionally right where we're supposed to be. And in a world where we are distracted and we are swept away by every possible thing other than our present moment, walk through Mark 5 again this week. Just walk through it with him. Read through it again. Look at it. Watch Jesus make his way through a day. He's called you to local intentionality, to be present in the present. So our challenge today, for each and every one of us, be where you are. Let's pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we would ask for your help in this. We can see Jesus in his fullness and in his, his fullness of spirit. Uh, we can see Jesus and aspire to that. And yet, Father, if I'm, if I'm honest, I know that I will fail at this almost immediately. I will fall somehow short and go right back to the old default of uh, being distracted or otherwise consumed with my own ideas and, and thoughts. Father, my um, prayer is that for me, for our community, that you would help us, strengthen us, guide us, Lord, that you would put in our path people that we might be intentionally present with. Whether it's a word or a hug. Father, if it's a prayer or just a conversation to let someone know that they are not alone, that they are seen, that they are heard. God, I pray that you would make us an intentional people that are intentionally present with all around us. God, we are grateful for your son. We're grateful for his ministry. We're grateful for the cross. death and his resurrection. God, we rest in that, that even when we are falling short, when we are the ones in need of the healing, God, you have done that work. So we rest in that. And as we rest, we lean into you to help shape us and form us to live out your mission. God, thank you for this space, this place. Thank you for today. We lift these things up in your son's saving name. Amen again just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect if you're ready to be known we'd love to know you and we hope you'll join us soon for our live sunday service at 9 30 11 a.m or 11 a.m online thanks for listening